the biggest misunderstanding. You get that a lot from foreigners and, and leftists in other countries who think that, look, this is the paradise. You can get just the rich to pay for all those goodies. But that's precisely what Sweden tried to experiment with in the 1970s and 80s and found out that it failed. try to understand more about socialism, what it is, what it is not, and we talk about what life was like in socialist societies and compare that to what life is like in market-oriented societies. I'm your host, Rosemary Fike, and I'm so excited for today's guest. In this episode, I'm joined by Johan Norberg. We're going to be discussing the very interesting case of Sweden, and we'll shed some light on the topic of whether Sweden qualifies as a socialist country. Um, and hopefully we're going to combat some commonly held misconceptions in the process. Johan Norberg is an author, lecturer, and documentary filmmaker. He's a senior fellow with the Cato Institute, and his work focuses on globalization, human progress, and intellectual history. He's the author and editor of more than 20 books. Um, these books include In Defense of Global Capitalism, Progress, 10 Reasons to Look Forward to the Future, and Open, The Story of Human Progress. Both of those latter books have been named by The Economist as Book of the Year in 2016 and 2020, respectively. Johan, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. Thank you for inviting me. I am so excited to delve into your piece, The Mirage of Swedish Socialism, The Economic History of a Welfare State. Um, but I think it's really important to make sure we're all starting off on the same page regarding what we are talking about. So when we talk about socialism, how do you define socialism? And on a similar note, how would you define economic freedom? So those are kind of the two broad concepts that we're going to be talking about. Yeah. Well, to me, economic freedom is nothing more abstract than the freedom to act in economic realms, which means most of them, <laughs> but anything related to our economic choices, work, business, trade, the fact that uh, those who make the decisions are those most affected by them, the, um, the parties to different agreements. So the less the government or an outside party dictates the terms of any deal, that's economic freedom. And socialism is kind of the opposite of that, or one of the, of the opposites. The idea that someone gets the chance to um, uh, get involved and dictate the terms to, to everybody else, specifically by uh, making property rights insecure, socializing um, the means of production, if we're talking about the, uh, um, the ideal type, not an ideal in a like moral sense, but definition. you know, scholarly. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Um, so the government taking over businesses means of production. But you can also say that you're experimenting with socialist ideas if you're con socializing consumption. If you increase taxation and regulation to a dramatic extent, you're getting close to some sort of socialism. So kind of like the degree to which the state is a big player in the market. Quite right. Awesome. Well, 
In your piece, The Mirage of Swedish Socialism, you give a really nice overview of Sweden's history, um, starting in the mid-1800s through the present. Um, and like most countries, there's been periods of time where Sweden has been more open and economically free um, than others. And and I know we could probably do a whole series of episodes on, on Sweden's history, but can you give us a, a brief overview of, of some of these different periods? Because one of the questions um, a lot of my students and, and younger individuals have is, you know, they think of Sweden as kind of a shining light of what what socialism is, and and I think that that's you know a big misconception that we kind of want to set straight today. Yeah. So my shortest uh, explanation of the Sweden's economic history is that yes, we've been a shiny example. We've been successful, and we have been socialist but never at the same time. So <laughs> therefore it's important to go through these different periods in Sweden's economic history, because uh, just 150 years ago, Sweden was one of the poorest European countries. And that was a period of very little economic freedom, the government dictating the terms of, of everything, basically impossible to start new businesses, to compete, to trade freely, no secure property rights and so on. Then we had a period in the mid middle of the 19th century, 20, 25 year period, when Sweden changed this dramatically, opened up to a radical degree, liberalizing business, making it possible for everybody to start businesses, to set prices freely according to market mechanisms, opening the financial market, making sure that capital can moves smoothly to the place where the best ideas are and at the same time integrating sweden into a european free trade area so that's the first important period in swedish economic history from around the 1860s 1870s and for 100 years sweden then takes off to a dramatic extent we have faster growth rates than almost any other country on the planet during this period and this is before we begin to build a, a generous welfare state. This is before we begin to experiment with socialist ideas. And as early as 1950, Sweden was already one of the richest countries on the planet, but still with a very limited government, with um, low public spending, with a tax rate that's lower than most European countries and lower than North America. And during that time period, um very, very radical change in the living standards and, and, you know, life expectancy and just quality of life. Um, one thing that jumped out to me is that during that time period, um, Sweden gave women economic rights in a way that was very, you know, not very common in other parts of the world. So, um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, how people's lives changed during during this time period. Yeah, that's an important point because this was not just an economic reform period. It was overall a dramatic reform period of classical liberal ideas in, in many spheres. So women get more equal treatment than most other countries were beginning to open up a freedom of religion, free speech and, and other things like that. And, uh, and yes, we can see on indicators uh, economically Sweden is doing great over this period this is when Sweden becomes the envy 
of the world, but also when it comes to other indicators of uh, objective indicators of uh, human living standards between roughly this 100 period year period uh, life expectancy in Sweden increases from 45 to 71 years again being the uh, envy of the world in the 1950s because of this child mortality declines from 22 to less than 3% and maternal mortality declines by a, a stunning 90%. So it tells you that we're seeing a period of general flourishment of the sciences of technological innovation and the spreading of these things throughout the economy, throughout society. And so around the 1970s, however, things start to change. So can you talk a little bit about what you refer to as their socialist period, what kind of reforms were ushered in and implemented, how the size and scope of government changed and grew during that time, and if there were any particular intellectual influences that kind of led the charge towards the socialism era. Yes, because now we enter the, the next phase of Sweden's economic history. We had the period of of poverty until basically the 1870s, then 100 years of rapid economic growth under a system of, of free markets and a limited government. Then from the 1970s and roughly two decades, we begin to experiment with socialist idea ideas. And this is what lots of people outside of Sweden still remembers. Uh, their perception of Sweden is somehow what stuck in the 1970s quite often. And the, the most important intellectual influence is just that we simply take our wealth for granted. Remember, right. we've had 100 years of tremendous expansion and suddenly from having been a, a country of, of hunger and, and misery, the rest of the world looks to Sweden thinking that we have it all made. Nothing seems to be uh, to go wrong in Sweden. And then we got a bit cocky thinking that, okay, let's then do whatever. We don't have to buy into the old economic orthodoxies anymore. We're, we're so wealthy and successful. So it's like the old saying, he that has satisfied his thirst turns his back to the well. And that's what we did because the system of free enterprise and free markets that built this wealth and, and this continuing growth was being step-by-step step dismantled. First of all, by a dramatic socialization of the consumption side. Public spending increased, it doubled basically in, in two decades. Uh, taxes on everything increased rapidly, but also all business decisions were now suddenly interfered with by the government. So we got more of a system of price controls because governments thought that, well, why not have lower prices without thinking of how this would affect incentives to, to innovate, to produce, and to make sure that goods end up in the right places. And second guessing many of the decisions on financial markets as well. And Sweden never become a real textbook socialist country. It didn't socialize the means of production, even though that was one idea that uh, some in the social democrats wanted to, um, they proposed in the 1970s and 80s. But this was a socialization from the consumption side. It's said that Francois Mitterrand, the French socialist president, said that, oh, look, in, in, in France, we socialized businesses and banks but we tried to liberate people. But Sweden did the opposite, and it seems to be more successful than what we did in France. So basically, allowing businesses and banks to continue to produce wealth, but socializing it. 
um, with very high tax rates on corporations and on incomes, they would then pour those resources into the kind of consumption decisions that they preferred. Uh, often the large public sector and spending more on various forms of social security and, and other things. And this is our socialist period then, basically the 1970s and 1980s. And what people said at the time was, look to Sweden, they're a very rich country, one of the richest on the planet, and they experiment with socialism. So it seems to be working. This is what people still remember. But it's like that old proverb um, or the, the old uh, saying, uh, how, how do you end up with a small fortune? Well, you start with a big one because uh, <laughs> then you waste most it's of bad. it. And then that's what Sweden did under these two decades. And this is often forgotten today, but this was not a golden era in Sweden. This was the one moment in modern economic history when Sweden began to lag behind its peers. So what, um, what kind of changes um, happened in the market? I know in the piece you mentioned some of the major entrepreneurs and bigger businesses start start to leave um, due to those high high tax rates and those those burdens on entrepreneurs. Um, what are some of the other changes yeah. that resulted from this? Yeah, the the thing was, we thought we were so rich in Sweden, so let's just distribute it. Let's just make sure it ends up in the hands of the uh, people who who deserve it. Then forgetting how it ruined incentives to accumulate more wealth, to create more growth and new jobs in the future. So what we saw was that for a um, more than a 30-year period, not a single net job was created in the private sector. So that engine of growth uh, ground to a halt. Some of the biggest businesses left Sweden because it was impossible to do business here, like IKEA, you might have heard of, uh, Tetra Pak, many of the most successful entrepreneurs left for other places. Uh, so Sweden became a more equal place because the big fortunes left. And this was a disaster. We saw then declining wealth in Sweden. We saw wage stagnation for a very long period, no new jobs again. Uh, but also this sense that we were trying to build a generous welfare state. But we can't fund it without these businesses and these entrepreneurs. So we saw uh, growing deficits and debts in the economy. And we began to not just lag behind others when it comes to growth, job creation and so on. But it also began to seem more unsustainable than it had before. Because we had to borrow and borrow to make sure that we could spend all these resources. And that ended in tears. That statistic that you said, not a single job is was created during this lengthy time period. That kind of mind blowing. That just grinding all of that progress to a halt, um, and so all of this started to fall apart in the nineteen nineties. Can you talk about you know what? what things started to bring about the end of this flirtation with socialism? Yeah. Well, we tried to keep it intact by borrowing more and with a debt and inflation fueled boom for a couple of years, it looked like if, if the money could continue to flow and if interest rates stayed very low, then perhaps we can make it. But of course, something that cannot last forever doesn't. And we saw something that's quite familiar today. 
uh, increasing interest rates uh, levels, uh, something that, that happens when you don't take care of your uh, finances and um, your um, monetary system. So suddenly it became very expensive to uh, borrow that growth uh, that we depended on. It was not just disappointing anymore. It, it disappeared completely. In the early 1990s, we had actually three years of negative economic growth in a row. It was an absolute disaster. And at that point, the rest of the world began to think that we might not be interested in funding this experiment anymore and demanded higher and higher interest rates to lend to Sweden and to Swedes. And for a brief period of time, the central bank in Sweden actually had to increase its interest rate to 500%. Not five, which sounds a lot today, not 50, but 500 to get anyone to want to keep some money in the Swedish crown. Uh, and at that that's, time... That's also very mind-blowing, 500%. Who would even, you know, that that's not a, a functional term to borrow on. Yeah, no, in those circumstances, you don't want to uh, refinance your mortgage. For, definitely for no, like no new cars, no no buying a house, not a fun time period. Uh, that's, that's hard on consumers. Yes, and, and, and unemployment shot up at the same time. And uh, Sweden had to devalue its currency dramatically yeah, to, to get out of it. But this was the moment in time when everybody said that, look, the, this experiment that we've had going on for a bit more than two decades has failed big time. And it wasn't even a major sort of economic recession in the rest of the world, but Sweden suffered tremendously in the early 1990s. And at this point, um, one observer said that, look, what we've tried to do with these high taxes and just spending and chasing away all these businesses. It's actually unsustainable. It's been absurd. It's perverse. We have to change our minds. And that observer was the uh, social democratic minister of finance, Celolo Felt, well, who uh, basically um, began to say that we had to move. So in, uh, there was a consensus between the major parties that we are going to have to get back to the future by once again trying to reduce the size of government and liberalizing markets once more. It's nice to hear that most people were kind of on board with ending the experiment. I can, I can imagine something like that in the United States taking decades and decades for people to say, oh, well, we just, we didn't go big enough into socialism instead of realizing the mistake. Yeah, there, there's often that reaction, and, and we had seen that reaction for some time in, in Sweden. We've had, we'd had 20 years by then with disappointing growth and job creation. People just said, yeah, perhaps if we tweak it a bit more and go bigger, we'll solve it. But this crashed into a wall. That's what happened. We ran out of money. We couldn't fund the government. And, um, you know, it said that Samuel Johnson once said that the prospect of being hanged in the morning focuses the mind tremendously. I mean, you right. have to make some important decisions, even if you don't like them, if the alternative is uh, the death of the Swedish economy and of the Swedish model. And that's um, unfortunately what it took for Sweden to begin to move uh, away from the abyss. That's not uncommon, though, yeah. that, that, a, that a crisis brings about 
very significant economic reforms. I know Canada had a similar situation. Um, New Zealand, you know, those debt crises can can bring about reforms that are that are often good for the economy. Um, so, so what kind of reforms came out of this crisis? How did how did Sweden adapt and and evolve um, into what we kind of know today as the modern Swedish state? Yeah, it was actually a not just one package, but several packages of reform, uh, very deep uh, and reforms that touched everything in the Swedish model, basically. First of all, it was just fiscal. We had to get the situation under control, so reducing public spending, reducing rates in social security systems, and reducing taxes to create incentives to start taking risks and innovating and starting businesses. Um, again, but also deeper uh, structural reforms, some of them related to spending. We introduced a system of fiscal rules to make sure that we never ended up in the same situation again, where we had spent too much and nobody wanted to fund us. So the, where the basic idea that almost everybody, the major parties at least signed up to was to have over a business cycle, we actually need a little surplus in the budget rather than, uh, than having deficits. Once but, again, I can't imagine the United States um, signing up for <laughs> such a such a reform. Um, yeah. So, w- what else? W- what other kind of reforms? Then there were also many structural reforms of just uh, setting markets free, so that we got the new major businesses. Because you know, at this stage, our most successful companies were one hundred years old. They came from the previous reform period. Now it was important to liberalize everything from energy and railways to telecom, the telecom sector, and, and uh, to create the new entrepreneurs. And at the same time, deepening free trade. And uh, we became members of the European Union at the same time to uh, be a part of the internal European market, with our, our biggest market, and make sure that we could trade freely with, with them. But also a set of um, structural reforms of the public sector. One of them, uh, very important for the future, and this is something that I now think it was difficult at the time, but now lots of countries think it's the the envy uh, of of the world. Uh, A reform of social security, where the pension system that was completely unsustainable and would run out of funds uh, fairly soon, was changed from a defined benefit system where you always knew how much you'd get if everything turned out well, which it doesn't because of demographic and economic situations. Uh, Skip that and instead just defining the contributions. And then it's the way the markets and the economy goes. So goes the pension system, giving everybody a stake in in future growth in the system and also tying it to uh, partial privatization, uh, making sure that there were individual accounts where Swedish citizens can then invest in the stock exchange funds uh, that they they prefer. So this makes the Swedish system one of the few uh, sustainable systems for the future. There's no date when this will go bankrupt because there are, there are equations in the law making sure that the benefits are not higher than the system can pay out long term. That is 
an, an enviable system. I know that uh, when I talk to my students, I always ask them, how many of you actually think you're going to get social security benefits um, when your time when it's your time to retire? And, and very few of them um, actually think that that's going to be something that pays off for them. Yeah, and that is the alternative. And that's important to keep in mind because obviously no one would want to see their retirement benefits shrinking just because the economy shrinks. But it's better with uh, knowing that that system is sustainable rather than at a certain point it goes bankrupt and you might not get uh, much, much at all. Um, it's not the pyramid scheme that most social security systems are. Right. Quite right. Uh, so during this this time period, there were some some changes that, that bring Sweden to what you call the capitalist welfare state. Can you explain what that means by the capitalist welfare state? Yeah, it's a... Uh concept uh, coined by uh, Andreas Berg, a Swedish economist who thinks of two aspects of the Swedish model. It is a fairly generous welfare state uh, on the traditional Western European level with a kind of an average level of social spending as a share of GDP, uh, hands out many benefits. And um, so to that extent, it is a welfare state, but at the same time, it funds it by having very free markets compared to most other places, by making sure that there's lots of creative destruction in the economy, openness for free trade and competition, making sure that labor and capital is constantly transferred from failing business models to the more successful ones. So if you look at uh, various indicators of economic freedom, like crisis, economic freedom of the world, you can see that uh, Sweden does badly when it comes to public spending and taxes, because they're still quite high, relatively speaking, but does very well when it comes to other things, uh, the free markets, uh, privatization of companies, competition, open uh, product markets and free trade and so on. So that's what the capitalist welfare state is. It is a capitalist economy. We've uh, removed most of the uh, sort of socialist bits left hanging around. Um, uh, but at the same time, having a fairly generous welfare state. But within that welfare state, and this is also important for the rest of the world to understand, trying to introduce competition and um, private providers and freedom of choice, even in, uh, the, in the welfare state. So, for example, there's a national school voucher system, making sure that private uh, schools, the, even for-profit schools, they get the same kind of funding as the public ones do if uh, pupils choose them. Uh, opening up the healthcare system to more of private providers, because one problem for a very long time was that one size fits all. It meant the, um, the lack of, of innovation, of new methods being introduced into the system and of people patients and pupils and families feeling that they were completely powerless. They just got this one thing that politicians had decided upon without any kind of influence from them. So that was one of the biggest things that I learned from your piece is that what you what most people think about in terms of your know, socialized health care, you know, Sweden is not quite doing what you think they are actually introducing a lot of competition on the side of, of the providers and a lot of choice 
on the part of of the individuals. Um, what are some other big misconceptions that people have about Sweden's welfare state? Well, I think the biggest misunderstanding, you get that a lot from foreigners and, and leftists in other countries who think that, look, this is the paradise. You can get just the rich to pay for all those goodies. But that's precisely what Sweden tried to experiment with in the 1970s and 80s and found out that it failed. I mean, if you have a small welfare state with uh, and, and you constrain the um, benefits and the spending, yes, then you can probably uh, make sure that high income earners and businesses pay for most of it. But if you try to turn it into a universal, generous welfare state, that's not enough. Uh, we don't have enough of successful companies and rich people. More than that, we depend on them to fund uh, our societies, create the jobs, create the revenue and so on. And we found out that if we try to do this in the 1970s and 80s, they move and we do not get a new generation of successful entrepreneurs. So what the Swedish welfare state does is actually, this is the dirty little secret of the Swedish welfare state. It squeezes the poor and middle-income households because they are more reliable and loyal taxpayers in a way. They don't move to Monaco. They don't have their assets there. They uh, uh, don't have tax attorneys. They don't dodge taxes. So if you can make sure that as much of the burden as possible falls on low and middle-income households, then it works out. That's what the Swedish welfare state does. So most of the redistribution in such a big, generous welfare state is over the life cycle of every individual person. Around 80% of all the spending is just me paying into what I got when I was a kid, getting preschool and school funding, and then what I'll get later on in healthcare and in the pension system, rather than anything that is given to me by somebody else. That's a very important um, lesson from the Swedish system. When... Uh, you know, the Bernie Sanders of, um, of the um, global left thinks that they should do like the Swedes do. Well, then they should uh, would actually have to turn, make their tax systems less progressive than the American one, because proportionally a larger share falls on low and middle income households. Corporate taxes are fairly low, internationally speaking. Um, a very large share of uh, the revenue comes from value-added taxes, value-added tax, a consumption tax of 25%, one of the highest in, in the world. And this is the kind of uh, tax on everything you pay. The level depends a little bit on the kind of goods you're buying, the kind of services. But it's a kind of thing where you pay exactly the same if you're rich or poor and buying a book or what? buying food or, or what have you. Um, and the same goes for income taxes, a larger share falls on low and middle income households than in smaller welfare states. And that is not what a lot of people have in mind when they are um, advocating for major redistributive programs. They typically have, we want to redistribute from those who have it and get them to pay their fair share to help um, those who don't. So. Of um, course, and that sounds tempting. If you can get does. something, if you can get a lot of stuff and somebody else pays for it, well, why not? But what Sweden has discovered is that, unfortunately, the only sustainable way of doing that is to 
take it from you. And that's not such a nice offer. It's a way of saying that, that politicians are saying that, look, I'll give you stuff, but I'll give you stuff that you paid for yourself and you'll get it on my terms in the kind of systems and offerings that I decide. That doesn't sound as tempting as this kind of uh, Robin Hoodish uh, squeeze the rich dream. Um, one thing that really stood out to me, um, in your piece is that you said not all big governments are created equal. So, so Sweden does have a very large, uh, government spending relative to, to GDP. Um, but it seems to work out pretty well for Sweden, but you say not all big governments are created equal. What do you mean by that? And, and what is it about Sweden that, that allows, you know, the, the size of government to be so substantial, but still very functional without eroding the benefits of the market? Well, first of all, I'd say, um, we should be a little bit careful of uh, trying to draw general lessons from, uh, uh, what the Swedish model looks like right now, because it's, it's facing problems now as well. And I go into some of that in my uh, piece, but also it's faced much worse problems. This balance of having this kind of generous welfare state, and at the same time, trying to make sure that the, we have successful businesses that keep on funding it, um, on, on very free markets. It is fairly unstable. It's very easy to get that, uh, system wrong and get the balance wrong. And in that case, you know, and with such a large welfare state, it's very vulnerable to business cycles. It's very vulnerable to changes in the economic structure of the economy. And you suddenly might end up in a major with major deficits and debts again. And it took this large disaster in the early 1990s to get us to get it at least better than we had before and introduced these fiscal rules that have sort of tied us to the mast in a way. So it's dangerous to go there. It's very tricky. Uh, so it's, it's not necessarily a success, but I think that the ingredients is to, to turn it into, we know what, what's the key to, uh, making it uh, work fairly well. And that's to make sure that there's a high degree of economic freedom, uh, in the economy, because you need all those entrepreneurs and businesses to fund it all. Um, and you can't do it by trying to get everything from taking from the rich and giving to the poor kind of, uh, system. Uh, that's, that's part of the success story. And that's not a very, uh, convenient uh, conclusion. It, it comes from, you can be generous with, uh, people's own money. <laughs> If you make sure that everybody pays into the system, um, but, but it again, is an that's important lesson. Good. That is an important lesson because um, I think about things that I I've heard in political conversations recently. When when yeah. um, the conclusion, instead of saying, "Well, we can't have tax rates be so high," people believe the conclusion is. Well, maybe we should advocate for a global tax rate. So I know I don't know if you've heard Biden yeah. kind of suggesting doing things like that um, to kind of take away the ability for countries or for companies yeah. to flee the country. 
um, in search of, of lower corporate tax rates. Um, so that, that you could draw a completely different, you know, policy conclusion from that result. Yeah. And, and I'm very glad that Sweden did not. Yeah, you could. Uh, but in that case, the risk might be that you're just prolonging the the the, the problems because, uh, in a way, the fact that com companies quickly left Sweden and uh, important entrepreneurs left Sweden in the 1970s and 80s that was an alarm bell setting setting off, teaching us and that capital left, teaching us that something is possibly going wrong here, and and it allowed us to start to draw up uh, plans on how to get away from that it but the more the longer term difficulty is that we didn't get a new generation of entrepreneurs not because they left from monaco or or ireland but just because if you have taxes at that rate people won't take the risks they won't build businesses and they won't uh, try to to innovate because it's difficult in itself and if the payoff is not that great well you you won't get it so if you try to standardize and uh, the, the tax system around the world, yeah, you might not get the, the Monaco effect, but you'd get the longer term problem. And that's like, you know, boiling the frog it slowly and steadily, but eventually the frog will, will die. And so, so will the economy. So what other policy lessons do you think Sweden has to offer the rest of the world? I think one very important lesson is that um, don't overestimate the knowledge you have about fixing the economy, setting prices, and so on. This is something we learned in the 70s and 80s. It, it seemed very tempting to set everything at the right level and making sure that businesses invest in a certain place and so on. We eventually found out that this was just a way of replacing the, the knowledge and wisdom of, of millions of people acting on markets with their own money, taking risks and constantly adapting to changing situations, replacing all that with uh, the ideological preferences of a few people at the top. And this is an important thing to get right if you um, have a fairly big government. Don't overestimate what you can do, what you can predict, how you can uh, fix the, the economy. And this is something that Sweden has started to abandon, I think, more than many other countries uh, on the planet. You know, there are certain kind of interventions that takes a lot of knowledge. And then, uh, like if you're trying to have uh, stabilization policies of business cycles, if you try to target specific businesses and, and handing subsidies and tariff protection uh, to those um, sectors and stuff like that, that takes a lot of knowledge at the top. And we found out that that's not where knowledge is. It exists out there on the market. So you can do a couple of broad things, setting up institutions in a smart way that makes it possible for citizens and for businesses to exploit their local knowledge and do things and and um and that's one reason why we set up things like not a perfect not trying to find the perfect school but allowing competition and the freedom to start new schools so that we would eventually learn more from it for example not trying to set a sort of a perfect pension system deciding 
what everyone will get, but setting up basic rules, making sure that uh, we don't, it's not dependent on centralized knowledge, but instead uh, making sure that um, most important decisions are handed to the experts, citizens and, and businesses. So that kind of going back to your your statement that not all big governments are created equal, Sweden's big government is designed or structured in a way that allows you still to benefit from that local knowledge that individuals have. It is not so focused on the knowledge of expert central planners um, running the system. That is a big, important yeah. lesson. It is, um, and I wouldn't say that we do this perfectly in any way. And the temptation is always there because politicians want to be seen doing something specifically. <laughs> but we did learn in the 70s and 80s that this was a way of wasting resources and, and ruining the economy. So we try to stay away from that. So before we wrap up today, I want to give you a chance to, to talk about anything that, that maybe we didn't touch on that you think is really important, any big misconceptions about Sweden that we, we didn't touch on or, or any big lessons that we didn't touch on? Well, um, I think it's important to once again emphasize the fact that Sweden's system of taxation is counterintuitively one of the least progressive tax systems in the world, or at least in, in the rich world. Um, it, the, the it's low and middle income households um, that who pay the bulk of of the the taxes, and uh, compared to other European countries, compared to the United States, compared to Canada, it's much more dependent on reliable and poorer taxpayers than on the rich and on on uh, corp corporations. And the high the bulk of the income tax comes from a regional flat tax. At yeah. around 30%, it depends a little bit on where, which city you happen to, to live in. But that's 30% kicking in quite early on, and then it's flat. And then there's a national income tax rate that's progressive, that kicks in at a high rate. But at that high rate is much, much lower than in, in other places. Like it's that. around $60,000 a year, uh, while in the U.S. it's like $500,000 a year. So it tells you that uh, Swedish socialists learned that uh, the, the only way to hand out goodies to uh, low and middle income households is to get them to pay for it. Mm -hmm. That's an incredibly important lesson so that people don't dream this 1970s dream of uh, how you would magically get somebody else to pay for all this stuff because that didn't work. Well... The last thing I wanted to ask today is if you have any book recommendations or other recommendations, blogs, podcasts, anything that listeners might want to look into next if, if they've been interested in, in what we've been talking about today. Well, if they're interested in, in this and my uh, take on, on the Swedish capitalist welfare state, I think they should read the guy who coined the phrase the capitalist welfare state by andreas berg which is a great book uh, explaining the swedish model and this strange mixture of free markets but a generous welfare state and how it's often a stable combination and it takes lots of hard work to 
to get it to function right. So that's a book that I would would recommend. Um, if they're interested in a popular version of what I've said, I actually have a documentary on this called Sweden Lessons for America, uh, done for America's um, American public television, but it's available on YouTube as well. So there I talk, um, go into more detail of Sweden's history, how we came up with this model and how we almost knew it. And if uh, you want to read a novel about Sweden, I would recommend Wilhelm Moberg, uh, we, who wrote one uh, famous series of novels in the mid-20th uh, century about Swedes who left Sweden for America uh, in 100 years um, earlier, about a million Swedes. Because that's a great story about where Swedes came from poverty and the oppression that they suffered through and how we were all desperate to leave it as this, the moment we got a chance. And this has been called Sweden's national epic. It's called the emigrants. And that's a bit of an irony that the national epic is about leaving the place you're born because it's so awful. Um, so we left it by migrating or by reforming uh, that place and turning into a one of the richest countries on the planet. Thank you so much for all of that knowledge that you've just shared with us. I know the next time one of my students suggests that Sweden is a socialist state, I'm going to send them this podcast episode and probably your your documentary that is on, on YouTube. Um, for all those who are listening, I hope you also enjoyed this conversation as much as I have. Um, if you did enjoy it, be sure to come back again and listen to me discuss the realities of socialism with other scholars. Um, I highly recommend following Johan Norberg on social media. He is a breath of fresh air in a world of bad negative news. I, I love going to, to your Facebook feed and your other social media because you do highlight the good things that are happening in the world and, and the human progress that has been made. So I appreciate your time. I appreciate uh, you and all that you do. And, and thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure. Thanks for joining us for the Realities of Socialism podcast, where we take a deep dive into the consequences of socialism as it was imposed on tens of millions of people during the 20th century. For more information, including infographics, free books, and more podcast episodes, visit realitiesofsocialism.org.